0: Uh, We've been walking through the 1st and 2nd Timothy series. We finished up 1st Timothy before Easter, took a break to celebrate the risen Savior. And now this week, we're going to be pivoting towards 2nd Timothy, uh, whereas 1st Timothy looked at what life in God's household looks like, how we as a family live this out. We said 1st Timothy is about following Jesus together, what that looks like in the life of the risen community in Jesus. 2nd Timothy, we're going to see how we follow Jesus together faithfully to the end, faithfully to the end. And today's message is called Not Ashamed. We're going to look at the first 12 verses of uh, 2 Timothy. So um, anybody here have nightmares, uh, recurring nightmares, nightmares from your past? You've had nightmares. I've had um, recurring nightmares in my life. And uh, the, one, the one that keeps coming back to me is that I, I get up on Sunday morning to preach, just like I am right now. Maybe I'm sleeping right now. And, but I look down and I don't have any notes. In fact, I'm not prepared to preach at all. Some of you guys are like, that's your nightmare? So, uh, but I'm afraid, this, this fear of being totally exposed as a sham, as this fraudulent preacher who doesn't know what he's doing. And people are going to start being like, grab your coat, honey. Let's get out of here. Let's go to the Bible chapel, right? <laughs> I bet Reisdyke has notes. The shame and humiliation of being seen as subpar at my job that people would look down on me. Shame, right? Shame. Uh, I also remember as a kid or maybe a teen, a teenager, I remember being ashamed of your parents, right? You guys have had this. Maybe you're a teen sitting by your parent right now. And you're like, yeah, totally nerd. Uh, but that's not nice. Submit to your parents. But um, I remember my mom and dad, you know, coming to school plays. And that's my baby. I'm so proud of you. Hey, you know, clicking the pictures and go get him, tiger. You know, that's not, that's not my dad at all. But uh, we, uh, it's, my mom still does that while I'm preaching, right? You're doing good, baby. You, you go get him. You show them that alliteration, right? But I, well, I, don't, I never understood, like, why am I afraid? Like, what, what is it that I, why, why don't I want, do I, am I afraid people will know that I have parents, that I have a mom and dad? Like, I don't know why I was ashamed of them, but I, I think that at the end of the day, I wanted to look cool and didn't feel like they helped me with my cool <laughs> portfolio somehow. And, and so I would distance myself, right? I'm my own man. And I'd only come to my mom when I needed money from her, uh, high school basketball road trips. She said, you only come to me when I need money. And that's still our relationship to this day, uh, which is, fantastic but we, we all want to see be seen in a good light right we all want to be accepted we all want to feel secure in who we are and in the moments in our lives when we don't feel secure the moment in our life when we don't feel accepted is one of, of a feeling of shame that we're afraid maybe maybe we feel like that security or that acceptance is in jeopardy because of a, a you know a doting parent or the exposure of a fault maybe it's the fear of being rejected or feeling judged by somebody and we experience the shame uh, shame the definition is it's a feeling a pain feeling of humiliation or distress called caused by guilt or shortcomings. And we know this feeling, right? This this feeling that we've come up short that there's guilt inside or imposed on us from without and it causes us to feel humiliated or, or that distress, that anxiety. Well, Paul and Timothy, this spiritual father-son duo that we've been looking at in the Bible here, they come from a very different culture than us. So we need to rewind a little bit to make sure we understand what Paul is saying from his point of view. In our culture today, we live in a very individualistic culture, which means our our highest good is that personal freedom, right? The individual rights that you do you, you little snowflake, right? It's all about you. It's about the individual. Um, We call this an innocence guilt culture. And the idea is, how do you feel about yourself? That's what's most important. Do I feel innocent or do I feel guilty? Well, Paul and Timothy were a part of an honor-shame culture. It's very different than uh, innocence-guilt culture, um, where they, their highest, uh, the, the person they were most concerned on wasn't the individual level. It was the group level, right? What does the group think? It was all about who are you connected to, and therefore, their highest good was not about me individually, personally, but it was about maintaining social order. Play your part. Be the good uh, son or daughter. Be the good employee. Be the good citizen. Be the good friend. Or you would bring dishonor to the group. Right? We know the, the song from Mulan. Right? Please bring honor to us all. It was this idea. And they were in a in Chinese culture that was high honor shame in the way that they saw each other. And so this idea, if you didn't, if you didn't play your part well, you were driven outside of the group circle. You had brought shame on the culture, and therefore you were shamed, rejected by the group. If there was an, ever an outsider in an honor-shame culture at the time, it was Paul. Now today, we think of Paul as a hero of the faith, right? Paul, Peter, John, great giants of, of, of the faith and apostles. Um, I, I'm all about Paul. Paul's my guy. Like to me, when I look at the stories of Paul, I feel like Paul is a first century Chuck Norris, Right? I mean, he's basically Jewish Chuck Norris. You put a yarmulke on him and you're good, you're good to go, right? You can't kill this guy. You beat him, you stone him, you put him in prison, and he gets back up and he keeps on going. Like, if, like, I love Paul, but at the time, Paul's imprisonments, his beatings, his rejections, they actually discredited him in the eyes of many people. They saw Paul in a prison as a failure say, Paul, look at it. You're proclaiming this King Jesus, this victorious, conquering Savior, King of the world. And yet, look at you. Why does it look like you're always losing? You're always being beaten. Your message is being rejected. You're being put into prison. See, Paul's breaking all the social norms. He's not worshiping the Caesar like all the rest of the Roman Empire. So the Romans hate him. Uh, he says there's a greater King than Rome, than uh, than Caesar. He's ticking off all of his Jewish brethren and, and sisters uh, who have rejected Jesus. Many of whom have rejected Jesus as Messiah. So in the honor shame culture, Paul is on the outs. His name's being dragged through the mud. Everywhere he goes, people are turning their noses up at him, turning their backs on him. His own failures are invalidating his message to many. So Paul is a guy who just, you know, he's the guy that doesn't seem to know when to stop talking about Jesus, right? We all have that awkward family member who who prays a little too loud at Acapulco, right? Dear Jesus, thank you for your, shh, just keep it on the, you know, come on, you're you're driving it." So we, we all know someone like that. And Paul was shattering many honor-shame rules at the time. And so many people were distancing themselves from him. We see this in verse 15 of this first chapter. You are aware, Paul tells Timothy, that all who are in Asia turned away from me among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. He says, many have turned their backs on me, many of the brothers and sisters who were walking with me. And you know it's bad when Hermione and, and Phineas and Ferb both both turn away from you. You're in a, you're in a bad spot. Um, but everyone, family, friends, those who were close to him, they see a burning building, a sinking Titanic, and they try to pull away as much as they can so they don't get pulled down with the ship. So Paul writes this letter, Second Timothy. Um, He is in prison. Uh, This is probably the second time he was in prison. The first one is how the book of Acts ends. He goes back into prison. It looks like this time he's not going to live to see much more physical life he will be beheaded, as, as we know, for his faith. And he's so ready to meet Jesus. He, he writes about dying. He says this in chapter 4. He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. He's talking about his, his physical death. And, and he's not being dramatic, and he's not exaggerating here. He is going to die. We, we use these words all the time. I haven't eaten in three hours. I'm literally dying. Right? No, you're not. Don't get me started on Literally. I had a guy tell me, uh, my head was literally spinning off of my body. No, it was. you got me started. I told you not to get me started. So uh, I wanted to give a shout out here this morning to Philip Jensen. Uh, He has a book called, a commentary called First and Second Timothy for you. And and this commentary has been super helpful for me. Uh, I just want to give a shout out, some of the thoughts I had today from him and would encourage you as you dig in deeper yourself to check him out. Um, He points out that in light of this impending death of Paul's, that he gives this central command at the beginning of chapter 1 here. And we see these words, and I believe this is the heart of what he's trying to communicate to Timothy and then for us today in this passage. He says, "'Therefore, do not be ashamed.'" Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Timothy, do not be ashamed. So three points we want to make here from this text this morning. The first one is do not be ashamed of the message or the messengers. Do not be ashamed of the gospel message, nor those who preach it. So let's put ourselves in Timothy's shoes here for a moment. Paul's in prison for the gospel. And wouldn't it be easy for Timothy to be ashamed of his mentor and his message because they seem to keep on winding up in defeat, in disaster? It looks like Paul's losing. It looks like his message is not prevailing. Where's the success, Paul? You're, you're, you're preaching that, that Jesus is here to change the world, and yet you're a laughing stock in the empire. And I imagine Timothy asking, does this thing actually work? Is this real? And if we're honest with ourselves, man, that, that thought comes into our heads too, right? Is God real? Is this, is this thing real? And, and if he is real, then why all the suffering in my life and the ones I know and love? Why all the suffering in the world? And, and why do so many people reject the message? Why do so many people write it off? Wouldn't it be better maybe just to embrace the idea that there isn't a God and just kind of do my thing here and now? And, and why, if Jesus is risen and victorious over sin and death, why do I still sin so much? Why am I struggling with the same thing that I was a couple decades ago? Why all the suffering? Why all the sin? Why is God still real? Is this, does this thing work? Even at Easter last, last Sunday, I had some friends with us who aren't professing believers, and it was time to pray, and, and the thought runs through my mind. Are they going to think that we're weirdos in this make-believe, kind of Easter bunny, risen Jesus sort of game that we're playing? And we all go through this, right? We, we all need these words of encouragement, these reminders, because there's a temptation to scooch just a little bit farther away from Jesus and his messengers. Paul says, Don't be ashamed, but what does he say specifically? He says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Now, this word testimony, uh, it was their word for witness. The witness of our Lord Jesus, which the Greek word, interestingly, is martyrion. Now, what do you see there in an English word we've gotten from that root? We see the word martyr. In fact, the idea of being a witness to Jesus became so associated with death that that's where we get our term, our idea for martyr. It means today a person who's killed because of their religious or other beliefs. They're witnessing to this thing, to this person, and being killed for their witness. The testimony of of, of Jesus. Um, this is this is the idea of. I would say it this way, that Jesus himself made the great confession, right? We said this, if you were with us at the end of 1 Timothy, remember when he came to Pilate and, and Paul said, Christ Jesus, who in his testimony, Martyrion, right, his, his, his witness, before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, that Jesus before Pilate testified, I am the king, not ultimately Caesar, I'm the king of heaven and, and earth, and sure enough, Jesus was martyred for it, Right? This idea of of being a martyr is one who speaks the truth in face of the opposition. Speaking truth in the face of opposition. And sometimes the opposition isn't just other people. People who might push back against the message. But it can also be our circumstances. That this is part of what we are called to in faith. That it's believing. It's believing and giving witness to the things that we can't necessarily see or, or prove. That yeah, right now my circumstances don't look good. It doesn't look like God's on the throne, that Jesus is king, but that's why we walk by faith, not by by sight. And the testimony of Jesus is the great confession of our faith, that he is the conquering Lord, the king, who's coming back to make all things right. And most of the world rejected that claim then, and martyred him, and many do today. And they killed him in what manner? Through a crucifixion, right? The crucifixion was the most humiliating and shameful thing that could be done to a human at that time. Not just that it was a method of, of, of execution, but even more significantly, it was a warning shot to any other rebels in the Roman Empire. They say, you see what happened to your leader? You see what happens to those who witness to this truth? This, this falsehood? You're going to go the same route as they did. And when Jesus called people to be his disciples, he warned them of the suffering that would come ahead. And he says, do not be ashamed. Hard words from Jesus in Mark 8. He says, for whoever is ashamed of me, and my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father. Man, Jesus says, if, if you don't declare me as Lord and Savior, then I can't declare you as one of mine. That declaration cost Jesus, the original witness, and it costs his followers. So Timothy, Paul says, he says, don't be ashamed. Rather, he says, don't be ashamed about the testimony of the Lord or, or me, but share in the suffering of the gospel. Share in the suffering that Christ invites us to die to self, and we we're crucified with Christ, and then to walk a similar road of suffering and shame. Now, consider that call for a moment. When Jesus is calling us, come follow me, and you will suffer, right? Like, imagine if I asked you, hey, I want you to come on a road trip with me to Anchorage, and I'm guaranteeing you we're going to get robbed at gunpoint by some crazies in Cooper Landing, some wild man. Wild. Thanks, Ryan, you're earning points back uh we're gonna get beat up by some crazy canadian tourists at girdwood because you know canada and 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 you're gonna be left for dead at, on turning on turning an arm trampled by a mountain goat right now if i said do you want to come with me on that on that journey right like how many sane people will be like yes i'm gonna follow you i know i'm gonna suffer i know i'm gonna die i'm in and yet this is the invitation that Jesus and Paul are calling Timothy and us into as we follow them. And that's why he, this is only going to happen. The only way we're going to be able to share in the suffering for the gospel is the tagline he puts at the end of verse 8. By the power of God. And we're not going to be able to do this. Not through gritting our own teeth. So we see two truths that Paul wants to give Timothy, so that he can heed this command. Two confidences that Paul has, and he lays these out for Timothy. Uh, our second point here is that the first, the first evidence that Paul knows who Timothy is. Paul knows who Timothy is. We're going to see that, I, that he knows Paul, or he knows Timothy personally. There's there's trust there. There's trust. So let's look together. Beginning of the letter, he says. Uh, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our, our Lord. So this is written, uh, many of Paul's written uh, letters are written to churches, the church at Ephesus, Ephesians, the church at Corinth, the Corinthians. But this one, like 1 Timothy, is written specifically to an individual, Timothy, the recipient and the namesake of, of the letter. Now he says here, not just any individual, but my beloved. Beloved child. We know that Timothy is not his son biologically, but we saw in the first letter that they are as close as any father and son are in relationship. That in those days um, he, he talks about the, the 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 closeness that they have. He says, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day, says Timothy, every day you're in my prayers on my heart. As I remember your tears, Timothy had been with him ministering to him while Paul was in prison, and now he's left to take care of this, this mess in Ephesians. He says, I long to, in Ephesus, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. You hear the emotion, the relationship that's there. See, at the time, a son very often apprenticed with his father in a family trade. Jesus was, did that with his father Joseph, right, as a carpenter, working alongside. And Paul and Timothy had this same relationship as, as they worked together, Timothy watched Paul preach the gospel, suffer for the sake of the gospel, and then came alongside also preaching with Paul and suffering with Paul. This develops a deep trust because they were in the foxhole together. And a reminder to us that, man, if we're going to endure suffering for the sake of Jesus, we cannot do it alone, amen? We need people, we need friends, brothers and sisters in Christ in the foxhole with us. Do you have those foxhole friends? Are you foxhole friends to others not called to do it on an island he says i know you timothy we have trust but then not only that i know your family i know your roots I know where you come from. Paul remembers his own roots in verse three. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors. Paul comes from a long line of the people of Abraham, the Jewish people, the tribe of Benjamin. My people have been serving God uh, for thousands of years. And then he says, your family as well, Timothy. I know your family. Verse five, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. He says, Timothy, I know that not just that you believe." That your mom and your grandma, grandmother, whatever he called his grandmother, everybody's got their own names for grandma. We've got Gam Gam, right? Gammy, Gammy, Gammy Gammy Ding Dong, Me Ma, Gigi, Woo Woo, I don't know, whatever you call your mom or your grandma. Uh, he says, I know that your mom and your grandma love Jesus as well. Um, so Jill and I were introduced to each other by a relative stranger. Don't worry, I did a, I did a background check. <laughs> He's not getting by me. Uh, and we started Facebooking, started texting, started calling. Um, and I got to know her heart. I got to develop a trust for her in, in her own testimony. But it was when I flew down to Sacramento for the first time and, and met not just her in person, but her parents. Stayed with her parents for that first week. Uh, slept in the room right next to her very military-trained father. Uh, but I, as I got to know them and their, their faith, the faith of her parents and her siblings just validated my trust for her all the more. I saw the roots of her faith, where she came from. And, and, and Paul says, Timothy, I, I know you, and not just you, but I know your mom and Gam Gam. I know where you come from. I, it's a clear testimony of the roots of your faith. And what a reminder to, to, to us, uh, to our parents. Man, what foundation are we laying for our children Because make no mistake, we are influencing, we are discipling. The question is, unto what? We're pointing them to Jesus or something else by the way that we live. And, of course, we know, man, this is messy, <laughs> that we're falling down all the time. Don't hear that as an indictment, that we're saved by grace. We grow as grace in grace. We parent by grace. This is what we're called into, which that actually leads us to the last confidence he has in Timothy. Uh, he says, oh, there's the roots of our faith. He says, I know who is in you. I know who is in you, Timothy. And this is the most important part. I know the power inside of you, not who you are, but what's in you. He says in verse 6, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in." you through the laying on of my hands so he says to timothy fan into flame well, what gift is this well in context here in first in timothy uh i would take it to mean the task of of the ministry of the word preaching the word and and organizing this church here in ephesus where he's been called to paul says keep the flame hot be faithful to this task even when it feels like you're losing and one gift that we see him give him clearly is in verse seven. For here's how you're going to keep that flame hot, Timothy. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self control. He says, Timothy, I know that you actually can't do it, but I know the one in you who can. Timothy, I'm not saying that you can endure because you're powerful enough, because you love enough, because you're self-controlled enough, because you'll never be afraid, Timothy. He says, but I know the one. What did we say last week? We've been united with Christ. We are one, the same, and now his spirit dwells in the believer. He's in Timothy. He's in you and I. And he says, I know that spirit. What's the evidence? How does he know that spirit? We saw it lived out in the cross. He says, I saw the spirit of Jesus on display uh, when he did not run away in fear but endured the cross. He showed the power, the ability. To, to do the job, to finish the job. He showed his spirit of love when, when he did not, he didn't do it for himself. His, he did it for the sake of, of those that he died for, the very people who were hanging him on the cross. And he evidenced the spirit of self-control in the garden when he said, not my will, not doing what I want, but ultimately, Father, what you want. So maybe today, God has, has called you to endure some, some hard suffering. Maybe it's walking through a sickness or a death. Maybe it's maybe it's just believing that there is a God. Maybe for you, it was just getting out of bed this morning. Based on this verse, I would say, I have all the confidence that you can do it. My confidence is not in you, but the spirit that's in you. A spirit, not of fear, but of power, of love and self-control. Because Jesus has proved that he can. I believe that he'll prove himself to you over and over again, which which leads us to Paul's other reason that he's so confident, not just that he knows who Timothy is, but more important, he knows who his God and Savior is, the one that lives in him. The first thing he wants to say in this part is that Timothy, God saved us by his grace. He has saved us by his grace. We saw the central command here, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And then he turns the corner to talk about that God and Savior. He says, who saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So what he's saying, he says, God didn't look down at heaven uh, from heaven and look at Justin and go, wow, he is awesome. He didn't realize all the cool things that he could do. He can do this with his finger. That's pretty cool, you have to admit. You can, you can do it too. We'll teach you after the, it'll be my birthday present to you. Uh, it's, not be- <laughs> it's not because of how awesome Justin is, Right? And 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 therefore, when when I started walking with God, he goes, Oh, I didn't realize He was going to make all these mistakes. I didn't realize He was going to sin so many times. I didn't realize that He actually wasn't as awesome as He had purported. So I'm going to bail on Him. No, no, no. He says, Here, God made a plan and a purpose before I was even born, before the world began, that He was going to save me, not because of my awesomeness, not because of my works, but because of God's loving purpose and His grace toward me. And so here's the good news. He says, when Timothy or, or you or I face trials, we can have an unwavering confidence that that same sovereign grace that saved us is the same sovereign grace that will not let us go and is the same sovereign grace that will keep us from falling. Amen. This is the confidence of our faith. It's not in ourselves. And then he goes, well, how does he show, how, how do we know this grace? Remember, we, we can't see it, we can't prove it. Well, there's there's one proof that we have here. He says, God proved his grace through the resurrection. He proved his grace through the resurrection. Now when a loved one dies, we, we ask ourselves the question, I man, how do we know that we'll see them again? How do we know there really is life beyond the grave for those who have faith in Jesus? Or maybe maybe we're struggling with a sin. How do we know, man, there is freedom and victory for this sin today and fully realized when Jesus comes back? How do we we know these things. How can we state claim to them? Paul's going to show one proof. And he's going to say, I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that my Redeemer lives. And I'll spare you the ballad. Verse 10, he says, and which now has been manifested through the appearing. That's our word from 1st Timothy. The epiphany, the arrival of the King, the God, of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to life. Through the gospel, this appearing of Jesus is here. I don't think is referencing his birth, although that's included in the process. But this is his resurrection. This is what we celebrated last Sunday. The receipt, the proof of his grace is given in the reality, the truth, the fact that Jesus is alive. This is the proof that sin has been defeated in our lives. This is the proof that death has been defeated in our lives. And it's that what validates our witness. Don't we need to know, brothers and sisters, that if we're going to proclaim this truth, we're going to be witnesses to this truth, we're going to suffer for this truth, we want to know that it is truth. We want to know that this, valid, this claim is valid. And in Hebrew culture, they required two or three witnesses to validate a claim. If, that, if you're going to be sure of that, had to see two or three people, eyewitnesses. Well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I can do you better than that. Jesus rose from the grave. He said he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, the prophecies that were foretold. And then look what he says. And he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the 12. So already you have four to six times the amount of witnesses that were needed to validate his claim that he was alive. But not only that, he goes way beyond that. Verse 6, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now we say well, Paul wasn't there, right? Well, in Acts nine, untimely. Remember the road to Damascus, Damascus experience that Paul had. He personally encountered the risen Jesus. He can tell us, "I've seen him. I know that he is alive. He's in this new body." And that actually leads us to this this proof. How do we? He proves his grace by the resurrection, and he proves his resurrection by his witnesses. His resurrection, we see. Over five hundred people witnessing this resurrection, and this is, and Paul is one of them. He says, "For which the gospel, verse eleven, I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher. For which, which is why I suffer as I as I do." So what's he saying here? 500 people saw the risen Jesus. Over 500. uh, Those martyrs in in the sense of witnesses. And then we also know that the other 11 disciples, not Judas, but the other 11 disciples died or suffered as martyrs, as witnesses. That They proclaimed the risen Jesus until their dying day. And don't you think, if it was a lie, if it was a sham, if the disciples stole the body... If it was all it was all just smoke and mirrors, do you think they would have given their lives and death for a lie, for a sham? I don't think so. He says the witnesses to this resurrection validate that they saw him and that the fact that they suffered for him. And and so what Paul says in verse 8, he says, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, nor of me his his prisoner. So Paul says, don't be ashamed of the original witness. And also, don't be ashamed of those witnesses to the witness. That's his call here. Now, Paul's in prison. The Romans all thought that Paul was in prison because of them, right? That that he's in a Roman prison. The Jews thought that he was in prison because of them. That he had blasphemed against their God. And therefore, under Jewish charges, he was was in prison. But Paul knows whose prisoner he actually is. He knows why he's in prison. he says in Ephesians 3 for this reason I Paul a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles I'm here for your sake and I'm here on Jesus's watch that Paul knows here very clearly he's not in prison prison for embezzlement or for murder he's in prison for being a sent one one who was a preacher apostle and teacher of the gospel he says that's why I suffer I'm suffering for Jesus' sake. Paul knew that that Jesus didn't die until the moment, the very moment, at three o'clock. The moment of the Passover lamb being sacrificed. It was the exact right time that Jesus died. And he says that same sovereign God who's in control of everything, he's the one that determines when I suffer, how I suffer, and when I die. Job says he knows the exact month. And the same thing is true for each one of us, right? Jesus knows it's not off. It's on his sovereign watch that we suffer and that we die. We can trust his timing. He says, not a sparrow falls without me being aware of it. How much more a child of God? And this leads us to our last promise here, the last confidence that God will keep his witnesses protected. This is the true witness protection program. I'm sorry, that was bad. Um, Paul is God's witness. He was beaten, he was mocked, he was in prison. And what does he see over and over again? God's grace in action. We see here in verse 12, but I am not ashamed, why? For I know whom I have believed. We're gonna sing it. After the sermon. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Paul says, I know the one I believe. I'm convinced that the one I believe is going to keep me. It's been said that trials are the food of our faith. That as we go through suffering, as we go through hard things, our faith is fed. Because see, it's one thing to know on paper that Jesus is faithful. It's a very another thing to experience his faithfulness in our lives and to say, no, I know it. Not just as fact, but as reality. I've lived it. I love what, what Tim Mackey says. He says about suffering. Suffering is not a sign of Jesus' absence. Oftentimes it can feel like that. Where are you, God? Where are you, Jesus? He says it's not a sign of Jesus' absence. The dark and difficult times can be when Jesus' love and faithfulness become the most tangible and real. And I know of this in my own experiences And I've walked through the valleys, the dark times. And I've needed my God to be the most real. I've needed Jesus to be the most present. I can tell you as a witness. And those are the times when God has shown up. When Jesus has felt more present than ever. The sweet times. He walks with us through the valleys. And the same God whose grace was faithful to us in the past. The future grace will keep us into into the future. So I'm a book reader. I'm a movie watcher. And I hate spoilers. You want to make me mad? Spoil a movie for me. I love being surprised. I love being on the edge of my seat. Are they going to die? Are they going to survive? But I also like re-watching and rereading. And so some of my favorites, like Lord of the Rings, uh, I don't have to worry the second time around. Now, I said in the first service, I didn't want to... I said, if anybody hasn't seen Lord of the Rings, what are you doing? And I had a girl come up to me afterward, helping up here at Solid Rock in North Carolina. And she said to me, I have just, for the first time in my life, started watching Lord of the Rings, and I'm going to watch the third movie when I get home. Thanks for spoiling it. So, sorry, you're not a Christian if you haven't seen all the Tolkien's movies. Uh, so I won't tell you how it ends. I have to. So Frodo lives. No, don't tell anybody. Uh, so Frodo, you know, we, we didn't have to, I didn't, when I rewatched it, I don't have to worry. Is Frodo going to make it back to the Shire or not? Is he going to fall the Mount Doom? Is King, is Aragorn be going to become king and reign, right? I've seen it. I know how the story ends. And brothers and sisters, we know how our story ends. We have the Book of Revelation. We know where this is all going. We know that His grace will keep us. We know that His spirit of love and power and self-control is in us. Now it is good when we feel like we're in the prisons of our lives, that we would ask the honest questions. We need to be able to express our doubt to God, express our anger and frustration and confusion, confusion, confusion and fear to God. because guess what? He already knows our hearts. We can be honest with him. We don't have to put the mask on coming into his presence. So we express those questions and those doubts. But we, let's look at the evidence together. And I believe that in our experience and, and according to the witnesses of Scripture, we can say like Paul, I'm not ashamed of this message or of its messengers. Why? For I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So the question for you this morning is, are are you convinced? Am am I convinced? Are we convinced? Let's not be ashamed. Let's be faithful witnesses, suffering with Jesus, suffering with Paul until the day that King Jesus returns. Father God, we thank you for these beautiful promises. Lord, some of us feel like we're in the valley today. Lord, we need to know that our Redeemer lives would you quiet our hearts that we would be still and know that you are God know that you are the God that saved us by your grace and will keep you keep us by your grace Lord that that we know that we know that the, 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 the trust is not in ourselves but in the spirit of Jesus that lives in us a spirit that is not fear though we fear a spirit that is powerful though we are weak a spirit that loves though we are selfish and a spirit that is self-controlled though we so often run to the things that we want we take our eyes off ourselves and put them on jesus and can know that the god who saved us is the god who will keep us lord quiet our hearts that we be still in the presence of that jesus today to be faithful to give witness to the way that we live and the words that we speak that Jesus is alive. Over 500 people have seen it. He is the king. It's a spoiler alert. We know how the story ends. He's coming back to make all things right. We pray in that name. We praise you in that name. The risen name of the original martyr witness, Jesus. Amen.